0: Welcome to This Week in
1: Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted
0: discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other
1: thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic.
2: A warm welcome to everyone to this uh, new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. It's a great pleasure to have uh, the guys with me again today. We've got uh, Elliot Turner, Phil Ordway, and Chris Bloomstrand. Uh, That's the order we're going to go in today. Uh, Each uh, has prepared uh, an interesting discussion on a a topic. And uh, I'll just uh, go to Elliot first and uh, really look forward to the discussion, guys. Go ahead, Elliot.
3: Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, this week, I want to talk a little bit about automation, both uh, some businesses and the implications for business, but also society and like what it means and what you know obligations we have as a as a country and you know maybe other countries too. But like in general, what obligations we have to other citizens who are impacted by automation. A really outstanding history book: uh, the structure of everyday life by Fernand Braudel. It's one of my favorite kinds of history where Braudel goes through the actual like reconstructing, reconstructing what a daily life is like across continents through kind of like the 1500s to 1900s. And there's a great example in the Industrial Revolution era of the Perrier brothers. We all know the brand today, Perrier and Water. It actually started as a um, steam pump operation where they installed machines that raised water 110 feet from the low level of the sign by ordinary steam from boiling water. It was extremely advanced technology at the time, major cutting edge breakthrough. And the kicker is that Um, If you read through local uh, firsthand accounts of the situation at the time, it really displaced a lot of jobs. There are 20,000 people in Paris at that time employed as water carriers uh, whose sole job was to bring water, um, you know, the 110 feet upwards. So, you know, on the one hand, you have this really impressive new technology that could do incredible things, make people's lives better and easier, uh, got water to where it needed to be far more efficiently. However, on the other hand, 20,000, I don't know off the top of my head what the population of Paris is, but that sounds like a very large number of jobs that people were displaced in. And so you know, how does society deal with this? Because obviously we need drinkable water, we need to get it to places efficiently, but You know, everyone needs to have some role to play in some job. And it's not like, you know, the skill that you'd build in carrying water upwards is easily translatable and transferable elsewhere. So we, in investing, are involved in a company called Cognex. They're specialists in machine vision. Their vision specifically, you know, some of the primary use cases are in, they're used on Apple's assembly lines for high precision drilling and then inspection afterwards, Uh, with a very high uh, throughput and lower error rate identifying defections in the process along the way. But by and large, the installation of vision is a very high ROI replacement of labor. It's competing directly with people on assembly lines for jobs. Now, the slower these transformations take place, the more jobs are able to be repurposed and repositioned to other areas of value. And there are jobs created between systems integrators who are involved in installing and specking out exactly what would work best for these functions. You know, it's pretty interesting in that sense. There there are some higher value jobs created out of it, but far fewer in number than what are more like brute force uh, inspection-like roles. Um, so you know, I find these companies interesting in the sense that they could give their customers very high ROI with very low payback periods. But I also wonder, on the other hand, like what role, what responsibility do we have a society? Do we as a society have in reducing the frictions for these displaced jobs and helping people either redevelop uh, a new skill set that's applicable elsewhere? Or directly offsetting, you know, the financial and emotional costs that this places on people, and so I know. I mean, John, you perhaps have a unique lens into this, uh, being in Switzerland, where um, I, I believe there's an experiment with universal basic income, you know, UBI for short, and some people, especially in the technology world, I think, where they are most keen, keenly aware that you know, technology is moving very fast right now, kind of like the Industrial Revolution era, is displacing jobs very quickly. And, you know, we need to do something about it, right? Andrew Yang was the uh, tech candidate for president. And that was something that he actually talked about the UBI. So, you know, I could, depending on where we want to go with the conversation, we could go more into the companies there. But I also want to broach this topic of like, what responsibility um, we as a society have for dealing with some of the uh, displacement from technology that's happening rapidly right now. Um, so maybe from there we could open it up and and see which path we want to go down.
0: Yeah, Elliot. I, I you know I suppose if you if you you know you mentioned the industrial revolution. You know I think this is an issue that's been bannered back and forth over centuries. And, and my take has always been, and some of this would come from just kind of base economics, but I almost think the situation resolves itself. I mean, there's the, the argument that, you know, you introduce technology, be it at a Cognex or wherever, you know, even throughout post-industrial revolution, you know, changes, you know, we introduced electricity and changes in the way we manufacture and, and deliver food, clothing, shelter, all of that. We, we We've never suffered for permanent displacement of of jobs. And I suppose in a particular company or industry that's being dislocated, you would have some temporary dislocation. But I think you know without a without a holistic societal response, a public policy response, I almost think it fixes itself. you know the 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 notion that we're we're increasing productivity, right with with advancements. the the, the notion that employment necessarily goes down, I think is, is broadly wrong. You know, I think it's, it's exactly the opposite. You know, I suppose across all of manufacturing, employment would go up, even though in an individual industry, it would probably decline for a period of time. So productivity should drive prices down, eventually increasing demand growth. Right. And I, I guess it goes back to, you know, just the base production function you have the two main inputs, capital and labor. And when you push on one versus the other and hold, hold the other constant, you know, I think, you know, adding more of one of those functions, you know, ultimately is going to drive down, you know, per unit, per, per unit returns. You know, so you lose your job and, you know, take, take the computer industry, you know, computer prices drop and, you know, it's a sexy field. And so individuals kind of chase that field from an employment standpoint and if they're leaving fields that would be considered less productive, you know, I think you tend to find that prices actually go up in those fields that are less productive because you start to get a scarcity of labor. So, you know, the combination of that movement of labor from industry to industry combined with, you know, what should be declining prices on the back end of productivity to me kind of fixes the problem.
3: Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, You know, one of the biggest impediments to Cognex growing faster has been an abundance of cheap labor. And so, you know, I was obviously thinking about it more from the company's angle, but when I tweeted this out, I got a really interesting response from someone with the handle Buns and Roses um, introducing me to the challenge of the English handloom weavers in the 1830s after, um, you know, major major advancements in technology there. And one of the things that happened is society didn't do anything for the handloom weavers whose jobs were displaced and tens of thousands of people died and they had to launch a Royal Commission, the Royal Commission on Handloom Weavers, um, which issued a report in 1841 about how widespread the deaths were and how challenged the situation got. And, you know, I think one of the proposals out of that was a discussion of, call it like a safety net um, for the poorest of people. Um, and you know, I, I know we have a more robust safety net in our society today than they did then, but when the pace of change is so rapid and the friction is kind of like abated and it just happens, um, things happen too fast for these jobs to just be replaced for very specific pockets of people. So maybe by and large for society, you don't see too noticeable a dent Um, in unemployment, but the people who are kind of like victimized by it, so to speak, I don't know if victimized is the right word, but victimized because it resulted in mass deaths. I I feel like that's hard. You know, I I like the idea that it'll take care of itself, but you could find a lot of these very specific examples of where it just simply didn't. So I wonder, I wonder what that all means.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fascinating question and a really deep, nuanced philosophical debate. So I don't know that I have anything too uh, revolutionary to contribute. I mean, I think that a couple of things that jump out that you guys both said, one is that this is such a rapid, almost unprecedented pace of change. But I was thinking in in sort of those long ago historical contexts that you just brought up, Elliot, where, you know, 100 years ago, 125 years ago, we were still in a primarily agrarian society. 30, 40% of all the labor force you know, was required to grow food. And now it's 2% or less. And that change happened really quickly, right, over a period of a couple of decades. And then, again, we had this big manufacturing boom that got kind of petered out over, I would argue, almost a slower period of time. And, you know, but it's it's brought a lot of societal upheaval. And, you know, it's brought on this debate that a lot of, you know, techno uh, forecasters, I think, would have pointed to 10, 20, 30 years ago that was Basically, as we harness technology to its logical extreme, you just will need fewer and fewer hours of work, fewer and fewer units of work to produce any given product or service. And so we'll get to this natural endpoint where basically nobody needs to work and we all just sit around and and pursue intellectual gain or leisure or whatever. And it gets back to this really weird, you know, circular logic for me. So. Um, I'm 100% with you that it's so disruptive and jarring that we have to think really deeply about how to, you know, take care of people that have been affected negatively by this through no fault of their own. But um, I certainly don't have any definitive pronouncements as to the best way to do that. Phil, you talk about the decline in the number of hours worked.
0: There's a fantastic book. In fact, it might be you know, w- w- one of my favorite books from the last five years that I've read, The Rise and Fall of American Growth by oh yeah. Gordon. It's I one mean, of my favorite
1: books too. I was actually his teaching assistant in, in college. He's absolutely fantastic. And that book, I, I gave that book as my holiday gift when it came out to all my oh, investors. I love that book.
0: I mean, if you like history and you like it through kind of an economic lens, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah, But he talks about kind of that decade of... I guess 1870 to 1970 is being the most productive where we saw the most change. Uh, as you, as you mentioned, we go from an agrarian society, we go through the industrial revolution, number of hours work dropped from something like an average of 60 to 40. You know, the woman was able to get out of the home. You know, we made the home life, we made the, 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 the work life better. We introduced air conditioning, appliances in the home, quality of life simply improved. And, you know, I think one of his points was you, you, you lose some of that through the conventionally measured inflation statistics. Yep. Uh, real GDP per capita doesn't fully capture the increase in the quality of life that we experienced over, you know, that 100 years plus. And, you know, he really concludes, and, and it, it's fascinating, he really says that post-1970, you think about all the technological change that, that we've seen and observed. He says it pales in comparison to what took place in that prior hundred year block of time the 1870 to 1970 and you know computers and you know kind of the more recent initiatives you know the gaming and what have you entertainment communication information processing what have you all that post 1970 are not the material big changes where you would have these massive dislocations of of, of people but he, he goes back to society took care of it and i think one of the takeaways for me is anyway if the public policy solution is to redistribute wealth as opposed to letting the system handle its training needs and its educational needs then i think you run the risk of creating a permanent underclass and we've done some of that and i'm not sure that's i'm not sure that's the path you want to go down i think that's i think that's the last path you want to go down so you know if there's some blend of public policy with, Elliot, to your point, you know, some kind of a jobs training program or a technology training, you know, training program, you know, that, that's all good, but you don't want to have the government be a permanent solution in redistributing capital. You think about, you know, the horse and buggy, you know, if anybody was in, in, in that industry and, you know, the maintenance of horses as our primary transportation and, and, you know, the primary, you know, power in the field in an agrarian society, you know, once we, when, when we introduced the automobile All of those jobs that were lost in those industries found their way to the newer fields. And there is frictional time and there is some downtime and you're going to have, you know, some period of transitory unemployment and that's hard. I just lean on the free market solving the problem versus introducing some kind of a public policy prescription.
2: You know, it's interesting. I'll jump in here because a few years ago at one of our uh, Switzerland events, uh, a tech CEO kind of talked about basically this topic, but from a more philosophical perspective, it was a little bit broader in the sense that uh, we are we are getting this artificial intelligence uh, revolution and kind of computing power is increasing exponentially. And I think we're kind of at that point where really computing power is just going to be so huge that... Um, computers and robots and so forth can uh, at some point take over. And he was really worried about that. It's something that Elon Musk and others have talked about as well. And he was saying, well, what role can humans play in that kind of a world? And, um, you know, to your point, Chris, when the automobile came along, what was interesting is, you know, humans did okay uh, post that, but the horses didn't, you know, (laughs) there was really no role for horses and the worldwide population of horses dropped precipitously. I mean, they just died out and are now basically for leisure and and whatnot. Um, But that, you know, his fear of this uh, tech CEO was, is what happened to the horses going to happen to humans in this new world? And, uh, you know, he kind of said, well, how can humans differentiate? What value can we add? And one thing was empathy. And I'm thinking in this transition, you know, clearly you could see more services. You know, so if automation takes away those manufacturing jobs, um, you know, humans could basically do the things that don't scale well, that, that are not automated so easily. But the question is you know, are there enough of those jobs uh, to go around? And yeah, it's a really, really tough um, philosophical question. Um, you know, uh, Elliot, you mentioned uh, Switzerland. I'm not aware of any major um, universal basic income effort in Switzerland, actually. There was a referendum on UBI over here, but it failed. Um, and I, from what I've s- seen, there isn't really any reliable data from anywhere in the world um, to say whether it would work or wouldn't. Um, You know, just intuitively, you could say it would unleash some entrepreneurialism. People would finally be able to do what they really love to do instead of uh, what they have to do to survive. Uh, But I don't think we have any uh, evidence on that. Um, So... Yeah, from my standpoint, I'm not sure we can really solve this uh, today, but uh, I'd love to hear more about the investment opportunities, uh, because I feel like there's going to be some serious um, money to be made on the investing side, um, just by virtue of how big um, you know this trend is.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of, I'll, I'll get to the uh, investment side last, but I um, I'm not that sanguine on the idea, I guess I hear from Gordon, I haven't read it, that technology and the pace of change have kind of maybe uh, slowed. You know, I've heard the term that we're on the precipice of a Cambrian explosion of technology and Internet of Things and everything else that comes with it. And I think that certainly feels that way, especially the way COVID's accelerated the pace of change. And UBI, just to put out my personal like bias there... Um, I was exposed to this book called The Stakeholder Society by um, Ann Allstott and Bruce Ackerman, who are Yale law professors, calling for like a modern version of the Homestead Act because the U.S. did have a sort of experiment in uh, driving, call it uh, frontier entrepreneurialism way back when. And their idea is to give everyone who graduates high school or the equivalent um, I think it called for hundred thousand dollars, a one time paid with a wealth tax with this one-time opportunity to use it however they see fit, whether it be for college, for you know entrepreneurialism, starting companies, or you know something stupid if that's what people so chose, but just one time, one time only. And that's it. And I thought that idea was, a, was interesting and perhaps is you know a better riff off of what the uh, UBI would offer. As for investment opportunities, I mean, I really like machine vision. I think it's a very important area. Many functions that you want to do with automation involve some degree of seeing. There are certain functions that could be done purely with feeling, but a lot involves being able to see. Um, and Cognex and Chaos are both really, really interesting companies. Chaos is one of those like, Hidden Japanese companies that's really large and you don't know it, and probably you know. I mean, I know some of us in the investment world appreciate quality and uh, might might have been exposed to it, but it's a very kind of close to the vest kind of company where you can't dig much into the filings, can't learn much by about them there. So, Cognex and Keyence are kind of the the beasts of machine vision. They both have ROICs if you strip out their massive cash positions. In the ninety to one hundred percent range, um, they need essentially zero incremental capital to drive growth. Whereas Cognex invests heavily in R and D, um, so that is where they invest. Keon's invests very heavily in their sales force and has an uh, sales driven culture. So, like when Cognex develops products, their engineers are working for years trying to build technology. Keon's instead puts their Uh, Salesforce on the floor with their, um, call it, with their customers, their largest customers. It's a little more like SaaS in the sense that their Salesforce learns how their largest customers are deploying their technology. And they then look for ways to enhance how they're using it, streamline the efficiencies, and then push out those uh, lessons into their infuse those lessons into their product and sell them to the rest of uh, their customer base. Um, so they're very different models that go toward the same thing. Where it gets really interesting is, uh, so far, the two biggest end markets for these functions have been in consumer electronics. So like I mentioned, Apple uses Cognex on their uh, assembly lines, including the Foxconn-operated Apple assembly lines. Um, and in automotive, so like the auto industry, uh, U.S. included, is pretty advanced in automation. The huge opportunity from here where we're seeing the beginnings of an S-curve are in, uh, is in logistics. Um, and so it's one of the things when we were talking about Nike a couple weeks back, uh, it really stood out to me. It's an interesting opportunity. Um, and I started looking to see if Nike was using Cognex in their logistics facilities I can't confirm that, but I did see that Cognex has been hiring for a lot of roles in Oregon, which is an area I didn't expect to see. So perhaps there's something there. Um, But I know they have Amazon as a customer for logistics, they have Walmart as a customer for logistics. They do stuff like vision based barcode scanning. So instead of using lasers, you could get much higher throughput um, with much lower error rates. It's, you know, uh, if you've ever done a supermarket checkout by yourself, wiggling the packages, contorting it to try to get. The laser to read is a pain in the butt. This is a really efficient, like nice process where just with one very quick second of being able to see it, you know, uh, the the machine is able to take in the information and make good on it. Um, So that's the one area I'm really focused. The other area I've been learning a lot about are in uh, cobots. And cobots are what are called uh, the, the shorthand for collaborative robots, And what these cobots can do, and it has interesting ramifications to kind of where we uh, launched off on this discussion. Unlike a FANUC robot, which is like this really high-powered thing uh, that you might see on a car assembly line, cobots are like smaller, but more efficient and much safer. So they're called collaborative robots because humans can work immediately in their presence. And they understand how to work with humans and they use machine learning to try to like figure out to learn their functions and do them in a more efficient and repeatable way as time goes on while not imperiling the safety of humans there so these are some of the things i'm looking at a very interesting company who's really pushed their technology and cobots is teradyne their primary business is testing for um for silicon chip manufacturers but they've been acquiring unique assets in this area, and if I understood testing a little better, I probably would have gotten involved with this company sooner. But instead, I'm just sitting here watching. watching. So those are a couple of things I've been looking at. I'm curious if you guys have, you know, looked at any other uh, related companies. I know there's some good ones.
0: Elliot, we did spend some quite a bit of time with Cognex a couple of years ago. The stock had sold off a bunch, and I guess my couple of questions would be selling into the big retailers and into auto do the customers let them make enough of a return on capital it, it it struck me that the returns were good but not great and then there's got to be a lot of growth because the stock i just pulled it up looks like it's trading at about 15 times sales so there's got to be a huge growth curve in, in in your opinion
3: yeah so there are a couple things there um One of the interesting things in logistics, in contrast to the other businesses, is you uh, mainly work with systems integrators. So they're not working directly with Nike, for example. If that is the case, they'd be working with a systems integrator. And they're able to get a pretty nice margin out of that. Logistics, the margin is like a little less than, you know, they have 80% gross margins in their other lines, more like 75, maybe 70% in logistics. And they say that'll scale to the margins that the rest of the business has. And the customers who are purchasing it get, you know, call it a uh, half year payback on the cost of vision and, uh, you know, two to 3X ROI on it. So it's pretty damn nice. I think, you know, that's what I've heard from some testimonials and uh, validated a couple different ways. Um, so I think that's pretty good. The stock is expensive. I don't think it'll ever get cheap. The one thing you have to adjust for is they keep most of their cash in long term assets and they have about 10% of their. It's probably less now, but maybe like eight percent of their market cap is in cash. Um, so if you adjust that downward, the the EV to sales isn't quite as bad. But yeah, you know, considering it's it's uh, up there, you'd think they have grown very nicely the last couple of years. In fact, 2019 was their first down year um, that they've had in recent times. Um, but a lot of that has to do with like really esoteric factors. And I think as the business diversifies and the composition changes because they've gone from like one end market to two end markets. Now three life sciences is emergent as a fourth and so on. I think they're going to get beyond that. You'll kind of smooth out some of the cyclicality that's, um, hurt the business as things have, uh, you know, moved from time to time. It's, it's a secular growth driver. That's a highly cyclical company. So if they could smooth out some of that cyclicality, which I think they're on the precipice of, it, it looks a lot better.
2: I'll jump in just on Kian's uh, kind of an interesting uh, little, uh, you know, case study because we've had um, one of our MI Global instructors uh, presented at um, our Asian Investing Summit 2018. So about two and a half years ago, and um, he made the case that Kian's should benefit from. China's long term plan to upgrade its manufacturing base, as well as the global shift toward AI and industrial automation. And here's kind of the interesting uh, part of this case study, which is a self critique as a more of a deep value kind of investor. You know, he he said um, the, the instructor kind of presented the shares when they were trading at a forward PE of 30x. But he said the company should be able to grow earnings by 25 plus percent for the next several years. And while the stock wasn't cheap, uh, he believed that Keon's was an underappreciated opportunity and a way to gain exposure to these themes of uh, factory automation. And lo and behold, uh, here we are a couple of years later, and the stock's up more than 50 percent. And, uh, you know, back then, I would have said a P of 30 times on a forward basis it's just something I wouldn't touch. But so, you know, kind of uh, a little bit of a philosophical question for us value guys is how do you, you know, look at these kinds of opportunities when uh, on a headline basis, they actually seem quite, uh, quite expensive.
1: It's something I wrestle with a lot. I've looked at some of these businesses. I'm probably less informed than most of you are on on these specific examples. But I spend a lot of time thinking about this broader issue. I've spent a ton of time thinking about this debate between Bob Gordon and uh, some of his academic peers, uh, notably Eric Bjornolfsen, if I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong, at, at MIT, um, who's on the kind of techno-utopian side where, you know, this argument that we're just now tapping the power of the computer and the digital information revolution. To make the Industrial Revolution look like small potatoes. And and Bob Gordon's argument is that, you know, yes, this is all wonderful, but we sort of experienced a one-time unique boom from things like indoor plumbing and electricity and penicillin and the steam and internal combustion engines combined with a massive demographic boom. And none of those are going to repeat again in the future, not just. You know the power of of electricity, but the demographics are much more challenging for the next fifty or hundred years, et cetera. So I've been I think about that a lot. I think about it a lot in the context of these investment uh, problems and and opportunities that you guys um, laid out. And, And to John, to your point in terms of valuation, look, I mean, we always stumble, or at least I often stumble on this sort of thing. But you know, the best companies with the biggest opportunities in front of them, if you're really early enough in the life cycle of the company are going to look expensive more times than not. So I I try to focus on the business first and get to the valuation last. Um, And it, it isn't perfect, but it's about the only way I know how to handle it.
0: Yeah. For me, Phil, it took reading Gordon to really open my eyes to the notion that, you know, the the gains in life expectancy 50 and 60 and 70 years ago versus where you are today, today's gains prospectively are just incremental, you know, gains in travel are incremental. You know, changes in the way we work and live are, are more incremental. They're productive as hell and they're very, you know, that you know, their displacement is coming faster and faster, but it's at the margin. It's it's not the big the big wholesale changes. And
1: that's a good way of putting it. I think he's often characterized as this grumpy, stodgy old guy who just doesn't get it. And it's a little bit of a mischaracterization. I mean, he has those elements to his credit mostly, but you know, he 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 definitely is making that argument more that he's not dismissive of the power of Com- the computing revolution and the digital information revolution, but it's exactly what you said. It's that this is an incremental benefit, not a game changing benefit. And, and I really do go back and forth. I mean, look, I think all of human progress is sort of premised on access to shared knowledge. And, and so by that token, this should be the most powerful thing ever. Right. But at the same time, I look around at what we're doing to each other and it's almost like human psychology is, so- is short circuiting that progress. And so I don't know about you, but it keeps me at least pessimistic enough to entertain the Gordon side of the argument rather than just being all in on the the techno-utopian side of the argument.
3: I don't we'll know go Gordon to- well enough, but it strikes me a little, well, sorry, well enough. I have not read the book. I'm not exposed. So I'm coming from a position of ignorance, but it strikes me a little like Neo-Malthusianism where it's, you know... Um, not counting on human ingenuity to do enough. There are epics in history where you could have made that case. And in in another sense, it's easy to sit in our seats today and reflect back on the past and see immense change. And in the present, it's less acute because things are, you know, rolling out a lot slower than they feel. Um, So I wonder, uh, that's something that strikes me.
1: His his argument's not not nearly that pessimistic or that Uh black and white. He's saying more that this is a good thing, but if you guys think it's going to be as important as demographics plus penicillin plus indoor plumbing and electricity and going to get you back to three or four or 5% real growth, he said, take the under on that all day. It'll probably be more like one or one and a half if we're lucky. Um, so it's not a, you know, the sky is falling and, you know, we're going to ruin everything and, and you know, just a, a stark black and white, good, bad kind of argument at all. It's just that we're... we're a little too optimistic would be his argument.
0: Well, it's a it's an incredibly data rich argument, and you know he takes the period pre eighteen seventy, the eighteen seventy to nineteen seventy, and the post. And you know you go back and and you know Warren Buffett talks about the huge growth in in real GDP per capita that he experienced over his lifetime, and he talks about the tailwinds that the United States and America and the industrial globe has, and you saw that. Ex- just massive expansion, um, kind of post-Great Depression, all of the evolutionary change and in industry that, that that took place during World War II, the innovation that persisted then in the 1950s. And the data is just absolutely right. Even if you adjust it for things like, which we just talked about, hours worked, you have not had the gains in real GDP per capita um, post-1970. And so that's, that's that incrementalism point. And you know, I, you take the last 10 years of, of broad growth in the economy and it's just been very weak. And I marvel at the changes that we've seen on the technology front, but it's not driving wholesale changes in the way we live. Uh, it's making life better and places it's driving prices down. And that's that productivity, you know, incrementalism, but you know, there's, there's a, there's a law of diminishing returns that gets introduced into the, into the, into the productivity factors. And I think we're seeing it firsthand. It's not unlike, and 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 you know the the other argument, and he doesn't really get into it, but you know we've seen such a massive expansion of debt. And I tend to belabor, belabor the debt point, but you know you look at the federal debt, and incrementally there's a huge law of diminishing returns there. Where if if you're not encumbered and levered, and you throw some debt into the mix, you can increase productivity and you can increase growth, but at a point. That next dollar of debt doesn't have the same doesn't have the same impact and effect, and at a point you can even go the other way. And you know, I think I think you've seen that with with industrial change. It's to my to my you know earlier comment. I think it's more incremental than it is wholesale change.
2: Well, I think in the interest of time, uh, we're going to wrap up this uh, discussion and move over to Phil for our next uh, topic.
1: Sure. So. I thought I'd talk about something a little narrower that um, pertains more prosaically to investing, and that's this concept of value traps. And this came up this week and, and had me thinking about it for two reasons. And one is, and I think you you guys have all talked about this before, I think we'd probably all agree that this is a, uh, not unprecedented, but certainly a, a unique period, difficult period in that there's just a lot of good businesses out there right now that are all doing well and prospering and, and doing the right things. And they're all kind of trading at prices that would reflect that success. Um, they're not being thrown out in the garbage bin, that's for sure. And then there's a lot of other businesses that are probably struggling at the other end of the spectrum and uh, are optically somewhat cheap. And it's those that I think are even more dangerous than the the high-flying, potentially overpriced ones. And so I, I've never liked the term value trap. I've always thought it was really kind of crude and ill-defined and lazy it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. So for our purposes, I kind of want to just for better or worse, arbitrarily define it as a company that's got its real challenges and is secularly stagnating. um, But because it's not dead yet is offering a premise, at least of being optically cheap and kind of holds out this, this hope that you can buy something at at less than a dollar of full value. Um, But it really is just suckering you into that belief that it's a bargain because Ultimately, the problems are being reflected, at least in part, in the price, and it's, if anything, it's overpriced compared to its future prospects. Uh, And so, again, how do we then evaluate those, and how do we identify those um, in advance? And I think the only answer really relies in cash flow. And it's stunning to me how few investors today of any stripe really seem to to fall back on cash flow as the primary driver of evaluation for investment prospects and so yesterday I, I happened to see a presentation that, that Jim chenos gave um, at a conference a virtual conference that I was attending and he was pitching IBM as a short and that's an interesting one because it's a big giant company that we all know I think everybody in the world's familiar at least at some level with the company um, it had the world's greatest investor uh, in it for six or seven years I think Buffett tied up seven or eight or 10 billion plus of cash in the common stock of IBM for seven years, I want to say, before he completely sold. I think it was two years ago now. Um, but when you look at it, um, it really is it really is troubling. And again, I'm not an expert on IBM. I've only spent a little bit of time looking at it just because I so quickly ruled it out as a, as a potential investment and I don't short anything anymore. So, But when you look at the disparity between the reported numbers. I mean, this gets back to another challenge of today. It's just that in almost more companies than not, it seems like sometimes there's such a huge gap between what's reported and what's real. And that's not just, you know, nonsensical, non gap numbers like community adjusted EBITDA. These are the real numbers on the page that are sometimes even conforming to GAP, but where companies are taking every possible measure to window dress the gap numbers to make them look better. I mean, just looking at IBM's numbers. I, I mean, I don't know credibly at least today, and I think this is probably why Berkshire exited two years ago, as they saw the writing on the walls to how bad this was going to get. But the quality of earnings absolutely deteriorated last year. I don't think there's any argument you could make against that. I mean, taxes—the the, the gap between book and cash taxes—is just one, you know, usual red flag that you need to look at. And in this case, it's it's pretty darn clear that there's there's something going on there. And, and then on top of that, I mean, it's just hard to look at any company where, you know, the the sales level, the, the revenue level is, is very flat over a period of time. But gross profit, operating profit, cash flow from operations and capital spending are all flat to down. And so that reflects, in my opinion, management very clearly saying that, you know, yes, not only are we less profitable and probably doing some things to prop up where we can, but they just don't have the, the amount of money that they used to have to spend on it, right? They're, they're spending less. I mean, the, the gap between CapEx and depreciation amortization is widening every year as well. And then you look on top of that, there's $65 billion of gross debt against about $15 billion of cash, but $65 billion of debt against maybe 7 or $8 billion um, of actual cash operating, or inco- operating income. So it's it's a pretty tough... It's a pretty tough setup. And so I just wonder if you guys have any prescriptions as to how to avoid these traps in advance again. I mean, all I can look back on is say, you know, if this is a hundred billion dollar valuation on IBM and I'm going to own 1% of it, that means that IBM has to in the future produce at least a hundred billion dollars of cash to pay me back my one billion. And that assumes I want no return on my money, so zero interest rates and all this other stuff. And, and what is the real likelihood that IBM is going to produce $100 billion of cash? Or for that matter, what's the likelihood that Tesla is going to produce $500 billion of cash? Or Apple's going to produce $2 trillion of cash, right? I mean, as long as we all agree that the, the only rational framework for valuing a financial asset is the discounted present value of future cash flows, that's the only thing we can really debate here. And when I see the numbers between what's reported as earnings per share, and you know people get all excited about the dividend in this case, I mean IBM's probably paying out at least fifty to seventy-five percent of their cash earnings in a dividend every year, and cash earnings are headed the wrong way, and yet they've been taking the dividend up. So it's just really hard to reconcile these things, and um, I, I just I'm not sure I can point to other periods where. You, there's certainly other periods where the, the expensive things were were potentially overpriced, but the cheap things were also cheap. And in this case, it just seems like a lot of the cheap things are actually cheap for a reason. The market's not wrong there. So um, it, it's just a perilous time. And I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on on the concept of a value trap and how to avoid it, or, or maybe if you've looked at IBM specifically, I don't know, but uh, it just really jumped out at me that this, this total avoidance of analyzing cash flows has just kind of reached a, an extreme on both ends.
0: Well, this thing is either going to be a value trap or it's going to be a home run. And I'm not smart enough to give you the answer, but you're hundred percent right. The accounting has been terrible, terrible for a long time. You know, you look at the history of write-offs and write-downs, you know, it, it, it kind of ties in. We talked about, you know, Elliot, you, you, know, you brought up AT&T last week as a monopolist. I mean, eight, IBM had multiple, lawsuits against them by the government uh, both here and abroad for monopolistic practices they owned the mainframe market you know they originally owned the punch card market you know their pc venture when they realized mainframes were dying was a disaster you know then services were going to be the deal and that's what I think attracted mr buffett and now i don't know if you guys have followed the latest on them but they're they're absolutely making a pivot away from services to the cloud in fact they brought in a new ceo Harry Krishna, I shouldn't say that, Um, Arvind Krishna, um, who I believe is spinning off the services businesses. They bought Red Hat and paid something like 10 times sales for Red Hat. I don't know, you're doing three or four billion in revenues and they paid 30 something billion dollars for it. So there's going to be a pure play on IBM's vision that they need to be a player in the cloud. And I'm not smart enough to know whether they're so late to the party that they can you know, go in and capture market share and grow alongside Azure and AWS and all the other players. Google's got a toehold now. You know, I think if you look at the history of the bets they've made, they've been a disaster. But here's the value trap. I mean, you know, you're going to go through these capital allocation decisions. You're going to spin off the dying business. And this thing's been dying for two decades. I mean, sales have dropped by a bunch. They've You, know, you talk about the dividend being, you know, more than half the profits. With the rest of what they've earned, they've bought back the stock and they've retired the share count by probably half in the last 12 or 13 years. And, you know, seemingly paying a bargain, but you've got a business whose top line's been in decline. I don't know. It's just a mess, but you know, at, at 10 times what they're earning and I don't know six or seven times what they were earning three or four years ago, if they can pull off the transition, I think they're trying to borrow the playbook from Microsoft and make a move to the cloud. So, you know, if they get it right, you know, this this piece that's going to wind up being kind of the Red Hat piece and, and what's now their cloud business. You know, if you if you take that multiple up from 10 to earnings to 20 or 30 or 40, it could be an absolute home run. I'm just, I'm not smart enough to figure it out, but that's, that's exactly how you can get into what you would call the term, and I hate it as well, but get into the term value trap.
1: Yeah, and I, I should clarify a couple of things. One is that I don't have any horse in this race. Either way, I was just holding it out as an example because... Chanos does great work generally, and and I thought it was interesting yesterday that this was what he picked, of of all things, to talk about. I mean, look, you you have to be careful, and this is a big, liquid, well-known company, so that played a role in why he picked it, for sure. But I don't have a strong opinion either way. I'm certainly 100% sympathetic to management's position here because this is a big, iconic, old company. It's really hard to run and manage those companies for the future. It's even harder to pivot them and change them. So they have a really difficult task, and I don't think there's anything they've done that's necessarily totally wrong or outwardly um, nefarious or anything like that. I will say, though, to your point, I mean, yes, I think anyone could look at this and say the accounting has been uh, tough, to say the least. I think the business trends have been going against them. They're probably late to every party at this point now. And you start looking at things like big Defensive acquisitions. I mean, Red Hat was clearly defensive, and then you start looking at some of the engineering behind the, this proposed spinoff and lots of other things. I, again, I don't know what else they could do, but those are all just such red flags. I mean, you're right. There's could they pull a Microsoft and and salvage this? Absolutely. And if they do, you know, the stock's going to prove to have been really cheap. But um, there's certainly a lot of red flags uh, flapping in the breeze at this point.
3: Yeah, and I think you guys are flirting with one area where I think, you know, all these problems manifest in what could transform into a a value trap, sorry to use the phrase, but they are in a very technical, very competitive business. And, you know, the talent pool is pretty tight there. And so when you have the reputation that IBM has, and I'm talking more recent reputation, not the history uh, they have, and you have the trajectory they're going on. It's really hard to compete for like the best in any given field right now, or in any given subfield of where they're operating. So I think that's something I would be very concerned about. Uh, where I'm looking at IBM, like how do they how do they put together the teams that are necessary to win in some of these some of these sectors they're work- they're they're trying to win business in. Um, and trying to compete in, it's not going to be very easy. So that's that's something I would be very worried about. It's a little different than where Microsoft was like eight years ago, um, especially when the whole tech world wasn't as uh, glorious as it is today. You know, Chris, it's interesting to hear you mention uh, re- mentioned last week's podcast uh, with IBM and at and Like IBM was supposed to be one of the big losers of at and breakup, and it never really happened because at and couldn't get their stuff together in that space. Um, but relatedly, you know, both these companies, at and I was uh, speaking with a friend just the other day, strikes me as one of the bigger value traps out there. They have, you know, seemingly nice free cash flow yield, but they've underinvested in their network for a long time. They have massive CapEx obligations coming up. They are like second, maybe third best now to you know, add T-Mobile ahead of them uh, in quality of the network. And what they're doing in media is just a heaping pile. And, uh, you know, one of the clearest points of evidence that's the case is, you know, you look at uh, Comcast who owns NBC and how they already got Peacock on Roku because they realized shortly after launch, Roku and Amazon Fire TV, I should say, um, they realized that without distribution, it doesn't matter if you have a good uh, media asset, and AT&T is still futzing around without HBO on any of the leading CTV streaming sites. So they want to have an OTT offering that people could actually stream, yet the way in which over two-thirds of Americans stream is not where they could put their product at all right now, I mean, it strikes me as absolutely crazy. So AT&T, I think of as a value trap. Um in 2018 Best Ideas Conference at MOI, I pitched Walgreens. I'd been involved with Walgreens from 2012 on. And I feel like uh, you know, I sold it this January. Um, thankfully. I thankfully, I think. Um, but that that was one of my like worst experiences with the value trap. And I think, you know, when I reflect on what are ways I could have avoided the situation, um, you know, one of the things to me that I th- think I took for granted is just pay more attention to every stakeholder in their ecosystem and make sure that there aren't new layers of stakeholders being added to the loser category. And if that's the case, if there are new layers of the ecosystem that, uh, that become losers, even if the stock's cheap, they're going to continue facing headwinds. they're going to be distracted by ongoing challenges. Um, and it'll be hard to find direction. And the more distracted these companies get about pulling things together, the less they could lean into some of the advantages that they do actually have. So the advantages start to get chiseled away alongside it all, and then the whole situation turns for the worse. So that's one of the ways I was thinking about it. Curious if you guys have have any other uh, value trap Mm -hmm. insights.
1: Yeah, that's a really good one. And I, I'm curious for your take quickly. And we'll move on um, to Chris's topic as well. I don't want to drag this out too long. But beyond other, that's a really good one, beyond cash flow, looking more at the the qualitative side and and taking a more holistic lens. But do you guys think that I'm overstating the case that this is a problem on both sides of the coin, basically, this sort of uh, lack of analysis or lack of focus on you know, cash flow in favor of just stated metrics, gap or non-gap, uh, you, you know, it just kind of boggles my mind on both sides of the equation right now when I look at how little attention people seem to be paying right now to, to cash flow. And I mean, actual cash flow. <laughs> no, you're spot on. I mean, that's
0: that's what it's all about. I mean, company has to produce cash. And when it's accounted for aggressively, it's just enough of a red flag. You ought to move on. I mean, just take you know, beyond the write-offs and how little of their income actually made it on a, on a free cash basis below the line. Just just taking the case of both these businesses, AT&T and IBM, I mean, they had spent both, you know, large amounts of time as the largest company in the stock market <laughs> by market cap. And, you know, they've gone through just these these slow death rolls. And as big businesses, they've got just a singular red flag. They've got these big legacy pension funds, defined defined benefit plans. And, you know, all of these old plans, in my opinion, for the last 20 years have aggressively assumed a too high of rate of return. And, you know, invariably, you know, every three or four or five years, they wind up going to the bond market, borrowing $3 billion, borrowing $5 billion, throwing in the plan and telling the world that the plan's now shored up, but they don't bring the return assumptions down from what's still probably seven, seven and a half percent. In both cases, they were over nine percent twenty years ago, and there was no way were they going to earn those returns. There's no way prospectively are they going to earn seven and a half percent. And so you take a, you take the plan at IBM, which is a hundred billion dollar pension benefit obligation on a business that does seventy four billion in revenues. Are you buying a business? Or are you buying a pension fund? And you know, it, it just it's just you know the the actuaries tell them what they can get away with, but I've never found these big legacy businesses to be conservative on that front. Berkshire Hathaway's pension fund assumptions have always been far more conservative. There's not as much latitude as companies get, but they've been at 6%, six and quarter percent for a long time. And these larger other businesses have been just far more aggressive. And you can see it in the cash that does not inure for shareholder benefits. And OFL, I think you're 100%, 100% spot on.
3: So I would take a slight twist and approach it this way. I mean, for something to work in the market... There are tons of investors with many different kinds of mandates. There's no one kind of investor with one universal mandate. Obviously, you know, if you're an active investor, part of your mandate is to part of what you're supposed to do is beat the market. But I, you know, your mandate is a little different. And so, you know, to really work, you need a confluence of mandates to pile into one situation and get it going. But I think on the one hand, you could point to cases where investors are very ignorant of the actual cash flow situation. And you could do that in the growthier or, you know, the the messier side of things. But then, you know, a friend pointed this out to me earlier today, and I was doing my jaw just dropped. You have a company like WD40, who's compounded sales at about 2% for the last 5 and 10 years, who really, you know, incremental margins are driven, maybe if anything, by like, Input costs, but don't have that much uh, wiggle room from here. And they are trading at 50 times PE right now. Um, So, an X growth company for the certainty of their cash flow, trading at a 50 times PE, uh, you know, 2%, sub 2% free cash flow yield, um, paying out a little more than half of that as a dividend. I'm like, wow, maybe people care a little too much about cash flow in some instances, not too little. And perhaps the thought process is as simple as the 10-year gets me, you know, less than half of what this dividend can. So I'll just stash my cash here for a decade. But I don't know. I I think it's a little of both. I mean, I think there's some really good investors out there who are able to understand some situations where there's not much cash flow and, you know, have unique insights into when, where, how um, the growth of the business will you know, result in uh, massive cash flow. On the other hand, I think there there is stuff out there like WD forty where people are like just going bonkers for for um, what seems like just as steady and easy cash flow as you could possibly find.
1: Yeah, those are both really good points. Let me
3: let me play devil's advocate for a
0: second, and then and and this is in no way going to be an endorsement of IBM as a long recommendation but if you put it side by side with microsoft and assume they're going to try to adopt the playbook of migrating more and more of the business to the cloud you have ibm doing half the revenues of microsoft 75 billion let's say versus 150 margin structure that's about 2 thirds of microsoft's on a net margin basis you know microsoft will do 40 plus billion in net income ibm's going to do about a quarter of that but in microsoft's case you're paying 1.6 trillion dollars for their 150 billion in revenues, and at IBM you're paying 100 billion dollars for their 75 billion. So, if you give them credit for an ability to pull this off, that's where this thing's not a value trap. And you know some of the biggest home runs over time have been companies that have genuinely transitioned the business, got it right, and you get rewarded with not only uh, margin expansion, moving into a more profitable realm, return on capital wise, but if they get it right, it ain't going to trade at 10 times earnings. And so, you know, the the value crowds, that's it, why the value guys look at these things and, you know, they get it wrong, which if you've been an IBM for the last 20 years, you've gotten, you've gotten it splendidly wrong. But I, I can see where you go and make the comparison and, you know, contemplate the change in strategy, but there's a lot of history
2: going against them. Maybe just one other angle, perhaps of, of looking at this, and I don't know that this is statistically significant at all. But you know, I can just imagine IBM right now being like a field day for management consultants and all the rest, because uh, you know they gotta they gotta figure out what to do going forward. And and like Phil said, maybe they can pull it off, maybe not. And maybe one so one vector maybe to consider here is is this company, um, does it have an owner operator or not? Uh, Because all of these businesses, they kind of need to reinvent themselves to not be value traps. And uh, when you don't have an owner operator, I think that's a lot harder because you're just going to get, you know, your typical kind of uh, business school CEO to go in there. There's going to be a bunch of consultants and they're going to kind of do the obvious things that sound good, but ultimately they don't typically end up working. And where I want to contrast, um, you know, and IBM for that matter, I wouldn't consider owner operated, um, same with AT&T, but where, um, two examples of companies that were or are owner operated is, um, Oracle with Larry Ellison and, uh, SAP with Hussle Platner. And I remember vividly like, um, basically 12 10 12 years ago or so Larry Ellison literally making fun of cloud computing at a Churchill club event and you know saying how he had the network computer before there was ever cloud computing and he was just kind of saying that's that's nothing that's just a name um and so you could have said given kind of his um, making fun of cloud computing that Oracle was gonna be a value trap and go down that path. But because he's an owner operator, he kind of found ways to reinvent uh, Oracle along the way. And uh, we know what the stock has done there. Same with Hasso Plattner, literally 12 years ago uh, as well. um, He had a debate with uh, Mark Benioff at the Churchill Club, where Mark Benioff was basically saying the cloud is the way to go. And Hasso Plattner was saying enterprise software is the way to go. And same thing happened there with an owner-operator in place. Over time, he realized, hey, here are some things we need to do. We got to listen to the customers and so forth. And they were able to do it. And SAP stock has done tremendously well. So maybe that's just another thing to consider. Kind of is this? And Microsoft is maybe in between, but you do have Bill Gates kind of in the wings, and uh, and you could make the case that it's closer to an owner-operator than not. So you know, just just something to to consider perhaps.
3: I think that's a really good thought, and it makes a lot of sense, even though Walgreens was what I'd call an owner-operator at the time, it went wrong. But for the most part, I think it makes it a lot easier. Um, If I could add one more thought to this, uh, I think of the book by uh, Michael Mopes More Than You Know, something that I give to a lot of people who are getting started in the industry or just have a basic interest in it. Um, And this is also in his base rate book, which is a tab that I keep open all the time. And if I recall, maybe I'm slightly wrong, but directionally right. Um, The two sectors where turnarounds worked least, so where your base rate was you were least likely for a turnaround to be successful, were in retail and technology. However, the two sectors where turnarounds had the most exceptional returns were also retail and technology. I'm going to have to look this up afterwards to make sure I got that right. Um but I know I know that was at least roughly like what it was that those two were were amongst the two best and and the two worst in terms of you know how good the returns were if you got it to work and and in terms of the likelihood. So in that sense, you know, even even with an owner operator, even if IBM had that, um they'd be fighting an uphill battle.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, super interesting discussion. Thanks, guys. Let's move over to uh, Chris.
0: Yeah, thanks. So I, I mentioned that I, we we dug into some numbers on the S and P 500 last week. A friend of mine had called and noted that you know I was fool enough to write the big check for the Bloomberg service each year, and you know with that we've got access to some data, and you know we were talking about kind of this disparate performance of the big five tech companies, which has been a topic du jour for a long time. I wrote about it in, in last year's client letter and the client letter the year before that. And so I kind of approach the I approach the concept of talking about these five a little bit as a Luddite or even a Malthusian, Elliot, kind of to our last con- prior conversation. But um it, it's extraordinary. I said last week that the top five companies returned 38% in the middle of a pandemic for the first nine months of the year, and if you did not own them, the balance of the S&P 500 was down 2.4%. And so we kind of played around with various sectors and combinations of sectors. And I thought it'd be fun to just go through a couple of these numbers, just to illustrate the degree to which if you did not own those five big businesses, you had a hell of a time, you know, not only keeping up, but you in all likelihood lost money. Uh, for the first nine months of the year, and so, yeah, you know, to the, the running the risk of too much data and tedium, I'll just I'll just roll through some that I thought were highlights. The, the big five on the thirty eight percent properly on a on a market cap float adjusted basis. Apple was up fifty four percent for the first nine months. Microsoft thirty three and a half. Google eight percent. Amazon sixty two and a half percent. And Facebook twenty two point four. The next 10 were just, and really the next 100 and the next 200 and 300 were really miserable. Berkshire is the next biggest business. We happen to own a whole bunch of it. It's by far our largest holding, down 7%. JP Morgan down 31. j up three. Visa up five. Proctor up 13. Exxon, which we own, down 48%. That's a fun one. AT&T, which we've been talking about, down 23 and a half. Bank of America down 31. So on and so forth. It's a mess. And so you, you you look at the top ten, which includes you know the Berkshire and the J P Morgan and the J and J. That that if the the top ten on a on a uh, on a market cap based return earned twenty five. So not the thirty three. The top fifteen earned seventeen point seven, and the top twenty earned fifteen. So you can see the degree to which these five really drove performance. And so I just went back a couple of days ago and looked at how fast the businesses have been growing and not that fast you know apple which was up 54 percent really has not grown its top line in the last two or three years in the quarter most recent ended june 30th, sales had grown 11 in the prior four or five quarters uh, less than one percent 9 two one negative five microsoft grew 13 in the prior quarter then 15 14 14 google was down. For the June quarter, it's going to be down again, uh, probably twelve or thirteen percent. For the September quarter, Amazon, obviously, you know, with with everybody at home uh, and ordering online, the revenues were up forty percent, twenty six percent in the March quarter, and they had been growing at about twenty percent. So Amazon's really the place. Amazon and Facebook, which are still growing at prodigious clips, getting into the sectors, the 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 most interesting takeaway for me with playing around with all these numbers is if you guys remember a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, the, the, the tech component of the S&P got to be so big that the committee that makes up the index, you know, effectively split the index and they divided information technology from communications. And I think the driver of doing that was you've got a whole bunch of institutional investors that cannot own more than 25% of a sector. And that tech sector, which, which had gotten up to at that point, you know, twenty-five percent and just beyond, you were going to have in, in, investors that were going to have to liquidate portions they're holding. So the index committee solved the problem, divided those those two, divided the IT from communications, threw some different businesses into the mix. Well, lo and behold, you know the, these things, you know these five businesses are growing so fast that the IT sector just this year has gone from 23% to 27.9%, which tells you that you know you may expect at some point here if they're going to try to keep this methodology intact and you don't want to compel sales of businesses, you may see another index split. But combined IT and communications, if you own that, if you own that group, you made 21%, so you got dragged down by all the other businesses that weren't the top 5. But that combined group has gone from 335 percent just at the beginning of the year to 38.7%. I've never seen a concentration of uh within an industry as, as as heavy as it is. And all of that resides at the top. You look at the sizes of the rest of these little bit industries, and they're nothing. Energy's dropped from what was 10%, you know, back in kind of 2013, 14, it's down to 2%. It's been cut in half this year from 4.3 to 2 materials are nothing. 2.7% real estate, 2.5%. Utilities have dropped from 3.3 to 3. You know, they're, they're just not that big. Communication uh, and IT are just driving the bus. And again, if you didn't own the top five, wildly distortive. And you obviously knew that by seeing, you know, if you looked at the Russell 2000, if you looked at the S&P 600 small cap, you looked at various sectors, you knew everything was down. Most international indices were way off And you just have this distortion of the NASDAQ 100 and the NASDAQ, which are up 30 plus. And again, it's these five stocks doing 38. So I thought, you know, I don't have any brilliant insight into it, except that it's just interesting to see. And and I suppose the takeaway is, okay, we're in the middle of a deep recession, a pandemic. You would expect a lot of businesses to, to be down in price. And there's this belief that we've just ripped ahead and obviously, there are a lot of companies beyond these big five that have done well. Adobe, NVIDIA, a lot of them are in the tech world, a lot of them are in the software world. Businesses that are cap light, uh, even that are labor light, you know, have done well. You know, companies that, that have not suffered big drop-offs, companies that have benefited from the pandemic. So your retailers, you know, like Costco and Dollar General, which we both own. But, you know, if you're impacted by the broad economy, your, your stock prices have, have reflected the downturn in your business. And it's just really interesting to see how big these big five are driving performance. And, you know, I'd make the case that I really doubt that prospectively I think they ought to be 23% of the index. And I think expectations are so high for most of the last 10 years, those five stocks were not expensive for the prior decade or so until about three or four years ago. And then they've just marched steadily ahead with the stocks growing faster than the underlying businesses margins that are very high which I don't believe can be driven much higher, you know, outside of probably Amazon. And and for that, you've got a pretty dangerous group. And, you know, a lot of, Elliot, to your point on the last conversation, there are a lot of other businesses that are really expensive. I mean, really, really expensive paying, you know, 10 and 20 and more than that on multiples to sales. So to me, there's just this bifurcation of, of performance and a bifurcation of risk again. And it was really telling. And I'm glad my friend asked me to run these numbers because... You know, it, it, I wouldn't have gotten into the granular data on some of the, uh, you know, the individual sectors and very, very, it's, uh, it's very telling. So I'm interested in you guys' thoughts on this thing.
3: Yeah. So the bifurcation in general is something I've like semi-obsessed on. And, you know, I, I've spoken about this theme of looking for a bifurcation within the bifurcation. But I think the angle I'd come at with this is, it's like time to do away with the tech and communications labels. Even, you know, um, if you look at the GIX categorizations, um, even with communicate within communication services, Google Alphabet, sorry, and Match Group are the same sector, right? And they both exist over the internet, but by and large, their businesses have nothing to do with one another. Um, and they don't even make money remotely in the same way. So I feel like we need to do a lot better job with understanding like how we categorize some of these businesses. Um, and I think they're you know, uh, the time's somewhat passing just because of what's happened, but there's been an opportunity to like take a variant perception and think about some of these businesses more as what they are than as technology or growth companies. like think about what industry they actually, uh, exist within, you know, Amazon for the longest time was a technology company, but is a retailer, right? I mean, it is what it is at, at a certain point. Um, I think we have to do away with this distinction. Um, and, you know, the same applies to legacy companies if they're not deploying technology. Um, and you look at some that are doing it really well, like Walmart and Target and retail. Um, if you're not deploying technology, you're um, setting yourself up to be a value trap for better or worse. So, you know, that's one of the ways I'd come at it. We really need new labels. We need better labels. And the pandemic unquestionably changed how we live our lives and how we connect with people and services and products. So it's definitely um, advantageous to the companies that were positioned that way. But, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it really was more not about like a dramatic one-time change, but more about pulling forward the future. Um, so that's, that's where I'd come at it from.
0: Well, they've got Amazon and consumer discretionary. So if I'm not mistaken, Google and Facebook sit in communication services and Google hasn't done that well this year because, you know, advertising spending is down considerably. Facebook, even you'd put them in the same, in the same camp. And so that comm services group was only up 6.9%. Well,
3: I have AT&T weighing it down. Yep.
0: Yeah. There's just a bunch of companies weighing it down, um, but I, you know, regardless how you skin it, there's just an increasing concentration in these various groups. And um, you know, like I say, they were not that expensive for the longest time, and they've really grown to be expensive, which is concerning.
1: Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. I mean, I, one thing that does jump out is, is you're right. There's certainly been an increased concentration here. And I think we are at – I think you said this, and I think it's correct that we're at probably an all-time low or certainly a multi-decade low in energy as a representation of, of the index or any index, really. And there have been periods, I, I've looked this up, and you know, there have been periods in the past where the top stock by size has been a bigger component of the index or even the top five. I mean, there have been some periods of somewhat similar concentration. Um, I know the 60s, uh, into the 70s, and even later and earlier than that, there were some similar periods. So I, you know, It's not quite that unique in my mind on that level. But I mean, the broader point certainly stands and um, you know these definitions, as you guys just pointed out, are super arbitrary and it'll drive you pretty nuts if you focus on that. So um, I don't know what to do about it. It certainly makes um, the debate about benchmarking and, and how to evaluate relative performance exceptionally difficult and that's a whole other topic for another day. So uh, I'm not sure where to, where to take it even beyond that because it's so so difficult and frustrating to, to wrap your head around some of these issues. And how much of this do you guys think is just driven by sheer
2: liquidity? I mean, I could see that argument kind of with what we're dealing with this year in particular and and what the Fed is doing that, you know, some of these largest, most liquid names are just, you know, places to be more than, uh, you know, the smaller constituents.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one other thing that that is really driving this and, you know, the way a feedback loop and some momentum is really built into the system here is, you know, undoubtedly there's been a rise in passive investing over the past 10 and 20 and 30 years. And I think for a lot of reasons, we've been through this before. That's a good thing. But there are some some drawbacks to that. And and one of them is that as a certain demographic ages out and starts needing or requiring liquidity from their investments, particularly in the equity markets, that tends to be a transaction whereby they're selling either directly or via more active managed portfolios, actively managed portfolios to a new generation of investors that's way overweight passive, at least on a relative basis. So you know All of the flows, I mean, forget about the Fed and liquidity there, just sort of the natural aging out of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond is, is almost mechanically transferring that money if it's coming back into the equity markets at all into a more passively managed structure. And of course, those passively managed structures are all, for the most part, market cap weighted, and on and up we go. So I don't see what changes that anytime soon either. Well, and I think, John, at, at, at a lot of
0: levels, these businesses... And companies that are genuinely growing are, are being rewarded for that growth, particularly in a low interest rate environment. You go back throughout time and the, the best performing businesses, those that, that were outpacing growth uh, on the top line, you know, Microsoft in the late 90s, uh, Walmart in the late 90s. I mean, Walmart, geez, traded for 50 times earnings and um, something like 160 or 170% of sales and they were doing a 3% profit margin. And 15 years later, at the same 3% margin, the business had continued to grow, but, you know, they were trading at 10 or 11 times earnings and 30% of sales. So they got re-rated when they started to be disrupted. And, you know, was Walmart a value trap to our earlier conversation? Uh, Turns out, no, they've gotten kind of the, you know, the online right, at least to be able to stand still and not lose more market share to Amazon. But... you you, you tend to see these excesses work off. And so I think rightfully, I spent a few pages in my client letter this past year talking about my expectations for, uh, my expectations that broad expectations were too high, but they were absolutely rewarded. You know, you've got those five companies that earned something like 25% collectively total return in the stock market, but their revenues were growing 20% a year. Their profits were growing 20% a year. And so it was only in that last three or four years that they really got rewarded as such. And I, I played around with some expectations and said, okay, well, if you take the world that's not growing, which would be the broad S&P 500, where revenues have only grown at three and a half percent for the last 10 years, and you've got these pockets where you've got a lot of growth, now that these five businesses, and you could you know, extend that argument and that conversation to the IT sector or the IT plus communications But it's the businesses that are now really, really richly valued relative to their fundamentals because they're growing and because they've been successful. And you just assume, well, at what point does it get so silly that if you extrapolate past growth forward in terms of returns and growth in revenues and growth in profits, that it just becomes impossible? And I ran a scenario where you assume revenues for the S&P would grow at four and you wouldn't have any additional expansion in profit margins, which know, year in 19 we're about 11 and a half percent you know down about a half point from their all-time high in the third quarter of 18. So I just assumed the world would grow at four and how big would these businesses get by market cap sales and profits if they grew at, at, at rates faster than four? And I think there's no argument that could be one to say here in the next handful of years these these collective five businesses or these growthy businesses are going to grow at the same rate as the broad sto- broad economy and the broad stock market but it gets so ridiculous that if you get out to oh you know 10% rates of growth you know the 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 five companies become 35% of the index 22% of sales 40% of profits at their at their same rate of growth that they experienced for the last decade uh, by market cap they'd be 85% of the S&P 500 by revenues they'd be a third of all of the revenues and so something breaks down between here and there And, you know, something always breaks down. Something broke down with IBM and they didn't transition to PCs, right? AT&T didn't make the transition as cell phones came along. And then they tried to play in the high growth areas like cable and now content. So I I expect and suppose without putting my finger on it, that between regulation and competition, that something bad is going to come at this group and there's going to be a lot of pain for, you know, having been willing to own these big giant businesses at 35 times earnings with an expectation that they would maintain or even increase profitability and maintain anywhere remotely close to historic rates of growth. Uh, But, you know, you sit here as a, as a active, not passive investor, and you've got to defend yourself. You know, when, when I sit down with my clients at end of the year, they're going to wonder, you know, why, you know, we didn't keep up with the NASDAQ? Why we didn't even keep up with the S&P 500, which was just driven by those five? And you've got to have answers. And and it's it's becoming more and more taxing on active investors, uh, especially if those active investors have not owned Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, MasterCard, Visa, you know, NVIDIA, the list goes on. But if you haven't owned the growth, you've suffered mightily. And, you know, the problem is you, you, if you want to transition now into growth, you're paying a really fancy price for it. So it's a, it's a genuine conundrum. It's made for a very, very difficult period to be an active investor. But, you know, with that, there comes a lot of opportunity. If energy is now 2% of the S&P 500, which is staggering, it's a far bigger percentage of the economy still. And if you assume we're not going to be on a, a complete carbon-eliminated footprint and we're going to have no internal combustion engines... In 2035, you know, there's still a lot of place in our economy. If you need shingles on a roof, uh, if you need plastics, you know, there's still jet fuel. There are a lot of places where you've got to have refined crude and natural gas. And so you might want to troll around in some of these places that have been so mercilessly beat up.
3: Yeah, I I kind of agree with that and have started looking a little more in some of the beat up areas. But I think on the growth side, there's a little bit of... uh, I think something a little different going on. It's not just interest rates. So there's been this big realization and there's a great uh, graph that Nick Sleep put in one of his letters. I forgot exactly which one, which shows the price you could pay for Walmart stock at any given day between 1967 and 1985 and earn a 10% return. And for much of the 70s, you could have paid anywhere from like two to nearly four X the actual price Of Walmart stock and still earned a 10% return, and you know one of his points, and he was making this point in the early 2000s. I forgot which year exactly. Was that growth itself, um, when it's long in duration, is structurally undervalued by the market? Um, So you know, I think that's been proven out with more than a few examples. However. What we don't have, there's definitely some selection bias. So the ones that didn't work where people, you know, paid a lot for growth, didn't pan out at all um, and got totally burnt. But a uh, long way of saying, if you could truly believe in the um, duration of the growth of some of these companies, I think they'll prove to be cheap. But that's not necessarily easy to do, um, nor does it mean it'll be easy to hold through these paths. Um you know, I referenced a couple of weeks back that the best stocks of the last decade, um, on average, experienced over a 60% drawdown at least once along their way there. Um, so that's that's what you have to deal with if you're going to invest in growth land. It's going to be impressive returns on the winners. There are going to be some really, ex- you know, unfortunate losers, um, unfortunate extreme losers, perhaps zeros along the way. And there's going to be a lot of volatility. Um but, you know, right now, why is the market paying up so much for growth? I think because um, not only, uh, I, I really don't think it's as much about interest rates. I think it's about how unique a crop of really great growth companies were are out there these days after having had a period where it wasn't quite um, as fertile. And the investors who've done pretty well over recent years have been more growth concentrated. So there is a momentum. Uh, and flows forced to it. So as these people get more money, they're looking for similar kinds of opportunities, and it kind of proliferates from there. Um, those flows definitely will reverse one day, so it's not always going to be that way. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens when that's the case.
1: I, I totally agree. I think that's a great point about the the anecdote about you could pay, you know, two, three, four times, you know, the then prevailing what was thought then to be pretty expensive price for a company like Walmart and have still done really well over a multi-decade period. I mean I think the problem I have with that is twofold. One is the number of people that have the patience to your point to survive the absolutely inevitable drawdowns that that subset of of people is vanishingly small so you you run the risk that you're either going to fall prey to your own psychology or just you know get forced out of the stock before it ever works and two the population subsegment that can look out 10 or 20 years and have the insight to say that Walmart is going to you know, be the, the world champion of retail over the next 20 or 30 years is really small. And the Venn diagram that combines those two patient and prescient investors is even smaller. But yet, as we look around today you know, those are the investors that seem to be absolutely everywhere, that people that both assume they're never going to have to sell or be scared out of it or forced to sell. And they have perfect insight into a 13-year lifetime customer value type calculation. And I just don't think that's the case. I mean, going back to your, you know, absolutely correct use of the base rate book, not only is it hard, but there's just very few companies that sustain those, to- those types of growth rates over a long period of time. And the ones that really do Um, you know, generally self-finance. So I think I I saw the other day, I mean, speaking of Walmart, I think Walmart for the first 10 or 15 years that it was a publicly traded company actually posted negative cash flow at at the consolidated level. But what was more important was that they actually had great four-walled unit economics and were very much self-financing their growth. And they weren't relying on outside financing and capital markets. And that's true of Amazon, you know, in the next generation. It's true of most great companies, if not all great companies. And as I look around at some of the really high flyers that have been around 10 or 15 years and can't make money after any period in that in that 10 or 15-year history and, and really have no prospect of doing it this year if things are going their way or not, I just wonder, you know, when is that ever going to come home? Phil, that's a great point on Cash
0: flows and free cash. Find a, a business that's growing that has that has the ability to invest in its growth. The last thing you want is free cash. You want every sure. dollar being spent on capex and building out infrastructure, and you want acquiring customers, right? Like a lot of these guys
1: do. Yeah,
0: but I think you know you overlay that with you overlay that with 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 price, and Ben Graham is going to wind up being right again, as he always has been price matters and you know Walmart never traded at you know 60 or 70 or 80 times earnings or never traded at 5 or 10 times sales it was it was a business that did a 3% profit margin but that was growing units very quickly but you know at w- once it traded to 35 and 40 and 45 and then ultimately at 50 times earnings at, at the peak in the late 90s You wind up with a disaster of an investment for the ensuing 15 or 20 years, because when it gets re-rated from 50 times earnings down to 10, you lose 80% of your money offset by whatever the growth rate winds up being. And there are a whole bunch of businesses that are going for 10 and 20 and more to revenues today that even if you find the ones that wind up growing into their valuation, invariably, when you get to scale and size, they're going to get re-rated back down as though they're real businesses. And when you get a hiccup in the growth rate, or you get a hiccup in the fundamentals, or when disruption comes along, you know, that having paid a reasonable price is what bails you out of trouble. And when you pay any price because you found a great business that's going to grow at a high rate for a decade or two decades, you still have to have paid a reasonable price and Walmart never traded at a nutso valuation. I mean, you could have bought it in in the high teens and at times low twenties multiple. And it was worth more than that as Nick Sleep so, so correctly pointed out. But, you know, 40 and 50 times wound up being a disaster. Microsoft at 80 times earnings, you wound up losing money for 15 years, even though revenues grew from 20 to $80 billion during that period of time. Um, You overpaid so much that when it got re-rated back down from 80 times to 10 times, you wound up losing money for a decade and a half. So price matters. And um, I I have the same feeling now that I had in the late 90s, that there was a suspension in the margin of safety that is
2: price. Well, I think we may also want to differentiate between the smaller growth companies and the real giants of today. Uh, I definitely see um, Elliot's argument of a company that, you know, has a niche, has a competitive advantage, is in a great space, and is a smaller company today. And it can keep compounding for a really long time that that's going to be structurally undervalued by the by the market. But what about these really, you know, the giants of today, Chris, to your point of, of how concentrated the S&P 500 is today and the in the largest uh, constituents there, um, if you think about that, I mean, I think in order to really say whether these kinds of companies like an Apple can keep growing at ten plus percent annually, and Apple hasn't even done that, uh, I guess lately, but um, you know, the valuation would require at least that for a long time. Um, you almost need to start thinking about much bigger issues that are not just um, apple specific because when a company is that big, you know and it's gonna be outgrowing the GDP for a long time to come, it's getting to be a meaningful portion of GDP even and uh, and then you know considerations like we had at the beginning, do we have universal basic income may actually come into play because if we have that, then I can see it, you know, then it's go- it, it, it might be a little bit like in this pandemic where everybody was mailed a check. What did consumers do with their check? Maybe they uh, used it for Netflix or Apple or what have you. But if we don't have that and the gap, you know, keeps widening in terms of the, the wealth uh, in society, um, you know, um, how many Apple movies can one rich person consume? it's not going to be many more uh, as the billions keep uh, piling up and so if the bottom uh, part of society doesn't have that disposable income or it starts becoming a little more constrained i don't see how a netflix how an apple how a lot of those companies that just rely on broad based um, disposable consumer spending can keep compounding at those rates so i think you know when you're t- dealing with such huge Businesses, you gotta start making some judgments that go way beyond just um, you know those businesses themselves.
0: Yeah, small businesses attract competition if they're incredibly successful. Large businesses that are incredibly successful and in the public eye attract regulators. You know, uh, i.e., IBM, AT over the years, and. You know, when to your point, these things consume so much of a share of wallet, there are just a lot of there are a lot of regulatory and competitive forces that that come to bear. And if they're and if the government's right here, and some of these are genuinely exhibiting monopolistic behaviors, they're going to get you because they're that big and that successful. Um, so yeah, I think you know paying the higher multiples for a business that can genuinely grow for a very long period of time is, is certainly been proven to be the way you ought to allocate capital. And I've learned a lot over the years about, you know, needing to pay higher and higher prices for companies that I'd like to own. You know, I I wish I hadn't been such a dyed in the wool value guy 20 and 30 years ago. I've learned a lot about how capital works, but well, these biggies give me a lot of pause because they're commanding 20% across the board profit margins and they've now attracted the eye of the regulators and to the extent compet- competitors can't get into their businesses, you know, when, when, when and if, you know, if and when they get re-rated on profitability and on market share and on access to their networks, whatever, um, when the multiples re-rate down as they did, you know, with Walmart from 50 to 10 times, as they did with Microsoft from 80 to 10 times. That ride down can be really painful, even if you're still a growing business like Microsoft was.
3: Yeah, it's similar to how looking at a company like Shopify, you know, I used to say the path from a 30x price to sales to a 30x PE is a bumpy one. (laughs) Now you could double that 30x. Um, You know, it's definitely true. It's a lot harder to grow when you're really big. Um, They're not just challenges on where your TAM is. So like that Slack versus Dropbox conversation, it's really, uh, you know, I think Apple to me really looks like a pool of liquidity. Some of these others similarly, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, Google's a lower P than Apple, but growing a lot better, but you have the antitrust overhang. So there are all these challenges, but yeah, it's really hard at a certain scale. I think it was interesting how much resistance there was For the first company to cross a trillion dollar market cap when that was coming into play. And then, you know, once that barrier broke, I feel like a certain ceiling on perceptions of what the largest a company could be kind of lifted alongside it. And we're still toying with exactly how big is too big and what the right number is, uh, we being the market. And yeah, you know, I mean, some of these things. We should be looking at what the baby bell-like assets are within them, right? I mean, you get too big, get too much power. There's going to be some broader push and consequences that result in pieces coming to us one way or another, whether it's a company puts out an idea to break itself up or someone else does. Um, I think to, to me, that's how I've, I've been thinking about some of these things on, on the large scale. Um, as for the base rates, I do think there might have to be some revisiting of the base rate book because some forces are pretty different. Um, to grow a store like Costco um, required a lot more physical capital to get there, and it's a lot harder because they were competing with taking share from existing industries. There are some companies out there who, you know, require almost no capital to grow and are competing more with like really large labor pools or. Uh, you know, service pools that people are paying into already. So there might be a little longer runway to some of these smaller companies than people thought in the past. Um, but, you know, that that will only be able to judge with hindsight like 20 years from now. So that's kind of, I, I definitely agree. There's a, there's a very different perspective we need to bring to the big versus uh, small in this. Hey,
2: Chris, I'm curious. I haven't been following this uh, since kind of uh, the S&P committee turned down Tesla for membership. Um, are they actually going to get included at some point? They just reported yeah. another quarter of profitability. You could say it's due to those uh, uh, regulatory credits being sold and so forth, but the pressure is going to be unbearable to to include them, right?
0: I, I really don't know what the committee at S&P is going to do about this one. I, I struggle with the accounting quality. Of the business beyond the regulatory credits. I mean, again, this is now, I think, five quarters in a row where they've showed net income. And if you strip out the credits and the reserve on those credits got pulled down by, I think, 140 or $150 million in the prior quarter, you know, the business is not really making money. But it's big. Yeah, it's $400 billion market cap. And how do you ignore a $400 billion market cap? It's in the NASDAQ. I think it's in the NASDAQ 100. It's not in the S&P. I, I don't off the top of my head know how many of the shares float. So, you know, when you get included in the S&P, John, they do it on a float adjusted basis. And I, with Elon's <laughs> 20 million shares or whatever they gave him a couple of years ago, I, I, I don't know how much of Tesla actually is free float available for purchase. And that is one of the things that the committee at S&P looks at. It's one of the reasons why um, Berkshire was not included in the index for a long time. I mean, the the price of the A shares before they had the B shares, kind of pushed against inclusion. But then when they did the B shares and then split the B shares, it made it a lot more palatable. But then, you know, with Mr. Buffett shrinking the size of his position with the gifts to the Gates Foundation, uh, the float of the business grew sufficiently. So I think that's probably an issue. I just, you know, Tesla is a hard one. Um, again, we had, we had that conversation in one of our early podcasts. And I just think at $400 billion, if you expect to make money as a shareholder, you know, if you're going to double your money and you think you're going to make 10% on it every 10 years, you know, you know double yeah, 10%, double every seven years, you know, you're looking at, you know, a huge market cap 15 and 20 years from now, and you've got to grow into the size. I mean, it's another one of these things that just, the the price makes no sense to me. How do you pay $400 billion for a company that's doing a run rate of about $30 billion in revenues that to grow, is going to require roughly a dollar of capital to produce a dollar of revenues. Um, they don't have the capital on hand. They raised they raised the $5 billion in the the market offering where they essentially, you know, bypass doing a roadshow to raise capital and doing a formal secondary offering. But I it's it's one that I just don't know. And John, there's so much competition. You know, you look at GM and Volkswagen and Fiat Chrysler, and they're all spending big monies and you know at some level if we're going to go down the path of genuinely you know moving away from the internal combustion engine there's a lot of infrastructure already in place and a lot of first movers that that have manufacturing capacity that Tesla does not. So I don't know it's long-winded answer on whether they get included in the S P. I'm I've never been um I've never kind of you know fully followed the methodologies of the index committee. You take the eight or nine companies that got it pulled out of the index this year and on average, I think they were down sixty-five or seventy percent. We ran those numbers, so you know they tend to, they tend to think and move in arrears. And some of it's market cap weighted, but there's a lot of value judgment about what goes in. And so, you know, if if, if you wanted a firm and hard answer, I would say, yeah, because they tend to follow the fashionable and what's hot, count on inclusion at some point. But they, I think the shareholders of, uh, you know, that that would come in passively, are, are stand for stand you know stand for a rude awakening when. Tesla evolves the way I think they're going to evolve. And you, you risk running the rails of pissing off every Tesla auto owner and shareholder when you say things like that. But th- there's not a lot that I find appealing about the business from an investment standpoint.
1: We've harped on this a lot, so I won't pile on too much, but I think it's actually closer to $500 billion once you account for all the dilution, to your point about the the add back of expensing of that absolutely egregious grant to Elon Musk and and other executives. I mean, that's one thing that does kind of boggle my mind about a lot of the the current corporate governance zeitgeist is that this issuance of stock to executives being treated as, as funny money just kind of continues to blow my mind. I saw the other day, somebody pointed out, I don't remember where I read it, if it was on Twitter or on a blog or somewhere else, but Snapchat's only been public for about three years now and three years and change. I think it was 2017. The share count's gone from 950 million to 1.5 billion. And it's been the equivalence of 20 the equivalent of about 20 billion dollars of financing <laughs> that they've raised in the market. That's all just kind of flowed through in the form of Expensing these options is, is, of course, compensation. It's not being treated as such. But you look at the dilution to non insider owners, and it's just one more headwind that you have to earn over a period of years. I mean, look, it can be somewhat efficient from the company's perspective, but boy, as an investor, I want to treat that very explicitly when I start calculating what I actually own and what it's likely to be worth in the future.
0: Yeah, the companies tell you, ignore it, right? But go to your cash flow statement to your point. It's right there in operating cash flow as a non-cash expense. It's just like depreciation. And they say ignore it because it's yeah. not an expense of the company, but it's damn it's dilutive crazy. and yeah. you have to look at it. Amazon breaks it out and they, you know, they try to, they, they, they try to tell you to look at the cash flows in multiple ways. And I applaud them for that. But the numbers are huge. The percentage of shares being given away are astronomical. And a lot of those companies, if you reconcile their their community adjusted gap. EBITDA and earnings, and you look at what's going on on a kind of on a on a dilutive cash basis. It's yeah, it's extraordinary. It's egregious and extraordinary in a lot of cases.
1: I'm with you. I think there's a pretty tight correlation between the companies. This gets back to our prior conversations on governance. The companies that point out what they want you to focus on that's aligned with common sense and aligned with good housekeeping, and the companies that say, "Oh no, don't look at this. Look over here and ignore this." non-cash expense because it doesn't really matter when it very clearly matters and so you know it, it's not a perfect one-for-one correlation but you know the more somebody wants to distract me from something that really matters the the less interested i generally am
3: Here, here yeah that's such a great point
2: any uh, final thoughts guys before we wrap it up i have nothing to add all, all right good well. here <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for another uh, terrific discussion. I hope uh, all of you listening enjoyed it as well. And uh, we look forward to next week. Um, So have a great weekend, everybody. Goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.